Successful entrepreneurs, from Steve Jobs to Peter Thiel, have obsessively turned to literature for ideas, unpacking canonical texts as case studies for effective leadership, concept generation, conflict resolution, and better understanding of diverse cultures. Joseph Luzzi, the award-winning author and professor of Italian at Bard College, is a champion of this methodology. Luzzi's perceptive work analyzes how history's premier minds, from Dante and Machiavelli to Shakespeare, Tolstoy, and Nietzsche, can spark innovative entrepreneurial insights, even in our modern day. I think reading is essential to leadership, whether you're a business leader or in any field, because what it does is it helps you create your values. Every leader needs to have those things. What do you believe in? What does your company believe in? What does your organization believe in? And that's different from profit. Of course, profit is part of it, but that's just part of the equation of being a great leader. In this conversation, Luzi delves into the 10 timeless leadership lessons of classical literature, mining the time-tested geniuses of the written word for literary test cases geared toward the world of business. Please enjoy our conversation with Joseph Luzi. You're listening to the Ivy Podcast by Ivy, the social university. We are the grad school for life, and our mission is to spark world-changing collaborations by introducing you to the most inspiring people, ideas, and experiences in the world. For more information about the Ivy community and to find out about events happening near you, visit ivy.com and email us at membership at ivy.com. Thanks for tuning in to the Ivy Podcast. I'm Eli Bobo, and today we're here with Joseph Luzzi, writer and professor of comparative literature at Bard College, where he also teaches in the Italian studies and film programs. Today we've got a super fascinating topic, what business leaders can learn from literature. Welcome, Joseph. Thank you. It's nice to be here. Great to have you here. So can we start by uh, giving us a sense of your background? Sure. Uh, my background is uh, I'm a professor of comparative literature, as you said. My specialization, I graduate school was in Italian literature, and um, I worked on other literary traditions as well. I've studied French literature, and now at Bard College, I'm able to teach a range of literary traditions uh, in the European, essentially, 19th and 20th century, but also I go far as, as far back as Dante and medieval literature as well. So you go a little bit further than most comparative literature professors in trying to make literature practical for everyday people. Yes. So can you talk a little bit about the parallels that you see between literature and the business world? Sure. Well, that's a, that's a great way to put it. I really believe that literature has a, a real world applicability without you know without instrumentalizing it too much I still think you should enjoy works books as works of art but what I believe is that books tell us a lot about how people live books tell us a lot about how people conduct themselves 
in the world, even though they're imaginary, even though they're make-believe. And to give you an example of that, think of a famous play, Shakespeare's Hamlet, right? So Hamlet is visited, everyone, most, well, not everyone, most people know the story. Hamlet's visited by his the ghost of his father who says, you know, you have to avenge my death. Um, he was killed by his brother, Claudius. Hamlet's very confused. He's not sure what to do. And what does he do at one point in the play? He has the has the play performed, right? The mousetrap by the by the players that visit the court. And in that make-believe space, he realizes that Claudius is the killer of his father because he sees Claudius's reaction, right? So imagine the world is full with all these signs that Hamlet can't quite decipher. And yet in this imaginative make-believe space of the play within a play, he can see the answer to the question that has been troubling him. And I think that's what literature does. When we read books, things that confuse us, things that may uh, knock us off our balance in real life can become clear through the sort of the analogy, the make-believe of this other world where we read about human nature at its most complex. And so in what ways does kind of literature or theater or the arts kind of disconnect us from the world in a way that lets us see things more clearly. That's a great point. I think on the one hand, more than ever, right, I think it was Pascal who said that, the French philosopher, we live in, our biggest problems as humans is that we can't spend 10 minutes in a room alone by ourselves. He said this in the 1600s. Now, I mean, this was before an iPhone. What would Pascal say about, you know, texting and and sending email? You need space to think. You need space for reflection. So that's the one thing that literature gives you. It disconnects you from the news cycle. It disconnects you from this sort of purchase, endless purchase on your attention and time, and you can do deep thinking. So that's one thing. The other thing that it does, to be a little more specific, I, you know, I, I think that reading and leading have things in common. What readers face in the everyday, what readers take from a literary text and what leaders have to gain from the organization or perform in the organization have some essential qualities in common. The first, I think, is humility. Every time you read a book, you're basically saying, the book has something to teach me that I don't already know. There's something in the book that's a mystery to me. And I think the great leader is the same way. He's always looking or she's always looking to learn from from, uh, his or her employees to see what hidden potentials they may have, to unlock the mystery that is in each employee and bring out their full potential. The second thing is collaboration. When you read a book, you're collaborating. The book means nothing without the work of the reader. It's just symbolic notations on a page. The reader brings it to life. In the same way, within organizations, the great leader knows how to get people to work together, to collaborate. The reader is a collaborator because he's he or she's not only looking to the present, but throughout history for help on questions. And the last thing I think that they both have in common, readers and leaders, is this idea of perspective. 
What can help you walk inside someone else's shoes? Think of the ending of To Kill a Mockingbird, right? When Scout walks home with Boo Radley, this person who terrified her throughout the book, and she suddenly sees the world through Boo's eyes for the first time. Instead of looking into his supposedly haunted house, right, which isn't haunted at all because he saves her, she sees him looking out into a cruel world and she's able to process the world from Boo's perspective. And I think every leader has to do that, to see the world from the perspective of his or her employees, to see how they think and feel, their take on things. And I think literature is a wonderful way I think it was, uh, you know, a way to kind of cultivate that faculty of thinking through the perspective of other people. I think in the, in the business world today, that's super important. And also there's a lot of conversation about a balance between profit motives, competition, and collaboration, and caring about people in a, in a, in a certain way. Sure. And... Um, so we recently talked about Peter Thiel's book. Yes. Can you tell us a little bit about um, a feud that he had and how he solved it by looking at literature? Well, uh, you know, I'm glad you brought up the Peter Thiel uh, story because that's such a visceral example of applying literature to a specific case in business. In Zero to One, Peter Thiel talks about um, the struggle that he had with Elon Musk over the, you know, credit card processing companies early on where his PayPal versus Musk's X.com, they were in a bitter struggle. And Thiel talks about Romeo and Juliet of all things, the Capulets and the Montagues, two families so alike, Shakespeare just basically describes them. And yet they were destroying each other. Romeo and Juliet, the fruit of these two families fall in love and die in this endless bitter struggle. And Teal says, this is how it is in business. We think of someone as our most savage competitor when we don't realize we have so much to gain from joining forces from them that we should emphasize our commonalities. Freud, Sigmund Freud, the great psychoanalyst, talked about what he called the narcissism of minor differences, that we can focus on things that seem so big, but they're really so little because they're often with the people we have most in common with. And Thiel talks about this as part of what helped him understand that the path of mutual conflict with Musk was not the right one to take, that he should broker a compromise and they should join forces. And that, as he said, helped save, you know, their companies at an important early junctures. So are there any parallels between that and, let's say, classic literature like the Iliad? Oh, gosh. Classic literature is filled with them. You know, uh, to me, the most one of the most haunting scenes in the history of literature is in, when in the Iliad, towards the very end, after years of struggle between Greece and Troy, um, the Trojan king Priam, who's lost his son Hector, to battle to the ferocious Achilles, who's essentially gone mad from war, who's he's desecrating Hector's corpse each morning. Priam marches into Achilles' camp when everyone tells him, stay out. Marches in, takes Achilles' hand, 
and kisses it and says, I kiss the hand of the man who killed my son. And it's this extraordinary gesture. It literally disarms Achilles in the sense that he's stupefied, taken aback, but also won't harm Priam. And he starts to weep and thinks of his own father and the struggles he's had. Basically, Prime's gesture resolves the conflict by doing the absolute necessary thing that it takes to go beyond conflict and humanize his enemy and see his enemy as someone who struggled just like he has. I do think it's perhaps the most moving scene I've ever read. After this happens, Homer describes how these two battle-hardened warriors Remember, Achilles is like a killing machine. And Priam, who's lost all his sons, embraced, and their wails filled the tent. And it's just this harrowing moment where these two hardened soldiers have just collapsed into each other's arms. So it seems like there's the two sides of it. On on the one side, there's the humility of the gesture of kissing your enemy. And then on the other side, there's this sense of perspective or compassion or understanding. Compassion, shared suffering, perspective, right. And I would even add a third one. I think that the three things, this idea of humility, collaboration, and perspective, all conspire to create the essential ingredient for great leaders, and that's wisdom. There's a lot of smart people out there, a lot of people with technical smarts. Wisdom is something more. Wisdom is judgment tested by experience, a knowledge of human nature, right? So what's what's the difference between wisdom and intelligence? I think wisdom is something, intelligence is problem solving, analytical skill, kind of raw smarts. Wisdom is being able to apply that to the real world, to people and all their complexity. And you asked earlier about, you know, obviously leadership is about running companies, making profits. That's absolutely true. But remember, we're talking about leadership here. Every organization needs leaders, not just the business world. I've done research on presidents in the books they read, all nonprofits, leadership, families have leadership, right? Universities have leadership. Leadership, I think reading is essential to leadership, whether you're a business leader or in any field, because what it does is it helps you create your principles and your values. Every leader needs to have those things. What do you believe in? What does your company believe in? What does your organization believe in? And that's different from profit. Of course, profit is part of it, but that's just part of the equation of being a great leader, right? A long-term vision for leadership. And I think, you know, the great works, great literary works can fuel that. It's interesting that um, Adam Smith, the father of capitalism, Most people misunderstand what he actually said. It's a great point. Guess what Adam Smith's day job was? He was a professor of moral philosophy. The wealth of nations has very few 
is very it, it's an extraordinary book there's very few equations in it it's not it has some quantitative material to be certain but what a lot of Smith is talking about is human nature why people act the way they do what motivates them it's a reflection on human nature applied to the economic sphere and Smith comes out of this tradition of moral philosophy that is absolutely essential for understanding creating emotional intelligence which all leaders need so Smith kind of says that it's more than just kind of supply demand profits um, that there's this other element to it where there's people who you need to care about yes um, people who can't support themselves right so are there any examples from your reading that um, maybe a president where it's about more than just material things? You know, I think we live in an age where a lot of us are wondering what what is a leader? What should a leader be, right? We, we Many of us have grown cynical about politics. Many of us follow the news, like the 24 news cycle, like sports. We can't dis- disengage ourselves from it, right? Should leaders be more like us? Should they be just like the person down the street, our neighbor, or should they be greater? Should they lift us up? I found um, in some recent research that I've done on presidents in the books they read, some very fascinating things. I started with an open question, do good readers make good leaders? I didn't know the answer to the question because, you know, you could say presidential office is one of action, is one of, you know, you don't have to, you can't just be living in an ivory tower to be sure. You have to understand the way things work. What I found is in our greatest early presidents, the ideal People that across the political spectrum agree were extraordinary president, Washington, Lincoln, Jefferson. All of them were profoundly committed to books. Even Washington was a who was a soldier and a farmer had a profound reverence for reading. He had designed his own book play. He loved this 18th century play, Cato, about liberty. He had it performed, allegedly, at Valley Forge. We all know that Thomas Jefferson was one of the greatest bookworms in colonial America. His, he gave his library to, um, the, you know, he sold his library to the Library of Congress and helped create the University of Virginia's library. Lincoln was a, a tremendous reader of Shakespeare. Um, you know, so many of the greatest presidents were making their decisions based on the, their understanding of literary texts. And think of a document like the Declaration of Independence, right? When um, Thomas Jefferson talks about the, um, you know, he basically says it, there comes, when you break with a political power, respect for the opinions of mankind impels you to make a declaration of why, right? This belief in rational, civil, and civic discourse, right? Right? this exchange of ideas and you asked earlier what it what how do they bring this leadership to bear and in, in the way they they um, lead think of someone like FDR after the Great Depression we were in one of the lowest points of our nation's history and he admitted we had a serious crisis but he said remember this is the famous we only thing we have to fear is fear itself where there's more to us we're more than material beings that's transformative leadership. Not to pretend there's not real problems, 
but to remind people that they are not just there's more to life than material goods right that they have their character their values that they have their beliefs to build on and that the leadership the leader can raise them up based on that and I think a lot of where they were getting that was from the great books and authors that they read not only did he raise them up but I think that entire generation he got them through the worst period of arguably American history um, so before you were talking a little bit about how books and literature help you understand human behavior and therefore inform decision making can you speak a little bit more about how literature can help us make better decisions sure you know when you think about I, I always tell my students literature is a kind of technology something we think with right we, we think of the iPhone we think of all these things but think about the book right it's been around for thousands of years in different forms the most recent version the, the, the printing press book was invented in the Renaissance and we're still reading them right we still look to them even though there's now electronic versions of them why what is it about this this form of human expression that is so important what what's specific about it too because there's other creative forms right you can watch TV you can listen to music what is it about reading I think a lot of it has to do with what the specific things that literature gives you what else can take you inside the way a person thinks and feels right if say you're interested in, in how people lived in the 19th century say you're interested in how people live in a country you've never been to you can read newspapers you can read magazines you can watch a movie you might even get your hands on a diary but what will give you that in the form of a story a coherent narrative right as many have said we as a species tell stories that's one of the things that separates us from other forms of life we're storytellers and one of the stories we tell is about our inner world what are we thinking what are we feeling what are our motivations every leader needs to know that that's what gives you a perspective inside people what makes people what drives people, right? We talked about that necessary leaders' necessity of having emotional intelligence. Emotional intelligence, the ability to empathize with and understand the actions, behaviors, feelings, and thoughts of other people. And to my mind, there's nothing that presents us with that world in a more intricate and complex form than literature. So when you're approaching literature, yeah. do you recommend looking for questions or answers? That's a great question. I think literature will never give you easy answers. I think that's because it respects us too much. Life is complicated, right? If only it were about the seven easy steps to A, B, C, D, E, F, G, right? It's not. There's usually two sides to a question. There's questions that are unanswerable. The mysteries of faith. The, 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 you know, uh, the, the mysteries of death. All these things that we don't understand. Literature 
explores those questions. It asks questions about them. It doesn't give you answers because this is what I think the miracle of literature is. Take a book that was written, say Augustine's Confessions. It was written in the late 300s. <laughs> okay, that's like 17, what, 16, 1700 years ago? Try and pick up something else from that far ago. You pick up a newspaper from seven days ago, it's already obsolete, right? Augustine's Confessions is about a man's spiritual crisis. It's as relevant today as it was 1,600 years ago. To be connected across space and time like that, I think is part of what literature's miracle is. And it shows us that we, parts of us have changed. Our technologies have changed, the way we live, the way we dress, etc. But our basic selves, our emotions, desires have remained the same. So going back to Peter Thiel, I could read Romeo and Juliet. Yeah. Or I could read The Art of War. Yes. Um, can literature, are, are there dark sides to literature and people potentially reading the wrong things? Well, you know, uh, books, that, that's part of the freedom of reading. There's no guidebook. There's no rules to read a certain way. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, uh, history, unfortunately, is filled with examples of brilliant people, good readers doing bad things. But that's, those are, the, those are the exceptions. They don't disprove the rule. By and large, our educational system is predicated upon the study and reflection upon great, challenging, important works, pieces of writing. There's a reason why we've made that a centerpiece of our education. My whole point is that the education should not stop with school. We can continue throughout our lives to cultivate our interest in books. And not merely, I, I should say, the difference between Romeo and Juliet and Art of War, sure, I know Art of War has made its way into a lot of business school curricula, but let's remember something else. Human life is not all conflict, right? It's not all the Art of War, The Prince by Machiavelli. Um, the other thing I would say is because when you read Romeo and Juliet, it brings incredible pleasure. It's a beautiful work. And so you're getting these insights that you can apply, but you're also getting the book as an end in itself. So how, do, how does literature have the power to help people transform their lives and their perspectives and the way they interact with other people? I think because what literature does is it, um, you know, we talked about um, To Kill a Mockingbird a little bit and how when Scout sees the world through Boo's eyes, and I think it was her dad, Atticus, who said, you know, I think, I think it was from Atticus who said, you should really walk a mile or some time in someone's shoes before you judge them. I think once you read about other people, once you learn about the world, it becomes very hard to see those people as others, as different, and as enemies. I think there's something about reading and seeing that they're just like you in some way. These other people separated from you by culture, by religion, by space and time. That you're, that when you see that, you're less apt to point the finger and say, well, they don't have, you know, they're, they're not getting something that I know. When you realize that 
they're a lot like you. When the more you read about people of the world, the more you see they're more like you than than not. So let's say somebody uh, isn't at the place where they're capable of walking a mile in someone else's shoes. How else can literature help someone? get there I think what literature can be useful for for leaders in all fields not just the business world the political world the the, the nonprofit sector as I said groups have leaders and leaders come in all you know in all different forms including the business world for the the literary um, value the literary qualities I'm describing what I would say is that what le- what books help you do is develop the values and principles that you choose to live by, right? How do you define the good life? How much money is enough money? What's more important to you? Your time or your money? Should you live a life that if you're just pursuing gain and material gain, where does that leave you at the end of the day, right? How do you, what values do you want your employees to represent? Do you want them to be someone who pursue profit at all costs or only pursue that profit which is in the long-term interest of everyone involved, themselves and the customer or the client? And I think that's where books can really help you, right? Because you see how other people have lived. You see how other people have run their businesses, right? And you see the mistakes that they've made and you learn from them you know um, I was always fascinated to read about as a student of Italian history the Medici Bank right the Medici Bank were arguably one of the first financial empires in Europe what is one of the things that they did they helped bankroll the Renaissance some of the greatest works of art by Michelangelo by Botticelli the Medici paid for why they wanted to be associated talk about branding right they wanted to be associated with beautiful eternal art that they knew would outlive them and it has we still go see Botticelli's paintings Michelangelo's paintings the Medici Bank has disappeared but for the the moment of its life those you know that period that century or so the Medici's had an association with the greatest most transcendent art why did they do that they could have you know, they could have saved money. They knew it was in their long-term interest to be associated with transcendent beauty, that that was something that would would help them, their image long-term, right? That was part of their value. They wanted to give to Florence, their city, these great works of art. So there was a civic, there was a civic pride there, a pride in the Republic of Florence, right? So all these business moves, right? were fueled by principles, were fueled by values that had not necessarily everything to do with the bottom line, if you know what I mean. Not directly, at least, but in the long term, you know, I think it's like anything, whether you're building a house, designing a company, writing a book, you want something that doesn't take the quick fix, but something that's going to stand the test of time. And to do that, you know, uh, you want to match match wits with some of the, the smartest people who ever lived. And many of the brightest put their thoughts in the form of a book. So if you had to kind of put your philosophy based on all of your research on literature and stories and presidents um, and its relationship to business leadership sure. management and sum it up for the audience, how, 
How would you put it? That's a great question because you're really asking the kind of universal, uh, to distill it into a kind of universal thought. And I would say I'm reminded of um, the book that's been most influential on me, a book that's helped me through difficult times, is Dante's Divine Comedy. Dante's Divine Comedy was written in the 1300s. It's 700 years ago, a world completely different from today, right? A world, you know, that was, is, is, it could be another planet as far as we're concerned. And yet, you know, Dante says in the middle of life's journeys, I found myself in a dark wood, that space of crisis that unfortunately we all find ourselves in. And at one point in the first canto of Inferno, he meets his mentor. We all need mentors. For me, books have been mentors. And he sees the poet Virgil and he says, he describes il lungo studio il grande amore the long study and the great love that have brought me to your work and I think that combination of studying as in immerse yourself in books try and get the most you can learn those principles and values that are going to help you help you be a better person help you be a better leader help you make more sense of the world but the other side of the equation is love right you do it out of a sense of passion and you do it out of a sense of believing that society is better off for having powerful moving pieces of writing society is better off for having art and that somehow things that are expressed in these imaginative works can give us this space for reflection for meditation for deep thinking that we can then go back and apply into our everyday lives our lives as citizens our lives in the business world if that's where your your work is and our lives as leaders wow long study and great love seems like a great place to end our conversation on literature and and everything that we can learn from it but before we wind down i have one more question for you sure aside from the books that we've talked about so far yeah top book that you'd recommend to our audience i think the top book that i would recommend to the audience who's interested in the relationship between um, the business world the organizational mind how leaders think and work i would recommend machiavelli's the prince because machiavelli's the prince is often misunderstood as a kind of brutal book of political realpolitik and a kind of guide to tyranny and it's not that at all machiavelli was actually it does have some you know unsavory moments where he talks about the brute exercise of power but what Machiavelli was trying to get us to think about was how, you know, he was living in a moment of political chaos and he believed that Florence needed a strong and effective prince to restore order. So his medicine, if you will, and he uses that metaphor, is pretty intense and severe. But Machiavelli has some extraordinary uh, questions for leaders to think about. One, for example, is, is it better to be feared or better to be loved? And, you know, that's sort of something that we all think about. Do we want people to like us first or respect us? Ideally, we want both, right? And in but which what if you have to choose and in which circumstances? So Machiavelli's Prince is a slim book. It's, you know, it's less than 100 pages. I think gives you a wonderful insight into how this, this work that was written centuries ago is still so applicable to 
organizational thinking today. So what kind of projects are you working on? Well, that's uh, that's that's a great question because right now I'm working on a few different projects. Uh, I'm writing a book that's going to be published by HarperCollins and the book is essentially going to be about um, the power and, and value of reading today in America today, why we need books, how I think we're living a kind of literature crisis where it's disappearing as a cultural value and how we can remedy that. And so that's what I'm working on as a writer. And I've decided also, as I do a lot of speaking, I've been speaking a lot um, on presidents and the books they read. I'm working on a program called Deep Read, which um, seeks to bring the insights of literature and the humanities to leaders and organizations in the business world. And I do workshops. I did one at Ivy that was a great thrill where, you know, I would present some of the material that leaders can get from the world of literature. And then we do a workshop environment where we actually use literature as a kind of, as test cases to make decisions on. So I'll be, you know, uh, developing that and going forward with that and hope to um, get some good interest in that from businesses and organizations. Wow, that sounds amazing. So I want to thank you, Joseph, for joining us. Thank you, audience, for joining us. This has been the Ivy Podcast and tune in next time. Thank you so much. That's our show for this week. Thanks again for tuning in to the Ivy Podcast by Ivy, the social university. We are the grad school for life, and our mission is to spark world-changing collaborations by introducing you to the most inspiring people, ideas, and experiences in the world. Check us out at ivy.com for life-changing advice and gatherings, and the foremost thought leaders shaping our world today. For more information about the Ivy community, and to find out about events happening near you, visit ivy.com and email us via membership at ivy.com. Dream big and stay inspired.